this is Chris, and I'm here with Caroline. Hey, Caroline. Hey, Chris. How are you doing? Good, good, good. We're the Sausage of Science. Kara is not with us today, but we wanted to take an opportunity to share a podcast with you that's already been out there in podcast world or podcast land, I guess. I guess I'll tell them a little bit about why we're casting this, Caroline, and you you did the editing, so you can tell us about the content. Does that work? Go for it, Chris. All right, cool. So when we were at the HBA meetings, we mentioned that it would be great if we could repodcast some stuff other people had done and extend our tendrils out into the community. And I was sitting next to AJHB editor Lynette Sievert, and she indicated that she had been interviewed for a podcast, and she hadn't actually even heard it, but she was kind enough to send a link to me. And what was the name of the podcast? Yes, so it's Science for the People, which is actually hosted by Bethany Brookshire, who is the editor for Science News. That's right. So when I found this, I found that they've done a lot of really cool things. So I learned one about a brand new podcast that I think our listeners would be interested in, in addition to ours. And then I wrote to her and they were kind enough to send me a link and allow us to edit some of the unrelated content from that particular episode so we could share with you the interview they did with Lynette. So what did they talk about in this podcast, Caroline? Yeah, so it's a great little podcast episode, and it's basically talking about the evolution of menopause, which is something that Dr. Sievert has focused a lot of her research on. So they're going to start the episode and talk a little bit about post-reproductive age in humans and how it's really unique compared to other mammals and even other primates. And then she's going to delve into some of her research that talks about cultural differences in age at menopause and treatment of menopause. So it's a really great episode. And I think a lot of our listeners would really enjoy it. Cool. All right. Well, anything else we should tell them before we we take a listen? If you're really curious and want to listen to the full episode, the start of the podcast, which we've cut for today's airing, talks about the neuroscience behind menopause. So if you're interested in that, check out Science for the People, and you can find the full episode there. Okay, cool. Let's listen. Welcome back to Science for the People. I'm Bethany Brookshire, a writer with Science News and Society for Science and the Public. And please be advised, for this interview, I have a terrible cold. So I appreciate your patience, and I'll try to get through this without coughing horribly. Now, being raised in a Western society as I have been, menopause hasn't been something that I've heard or talked a lot about until today. We've already heard a little bit about some of the symptoms of menopause that go beyond the hot flashes. But where does menopause come from? How long have women been waking up with night sweats? What's it for? And how do other cultures handle this phenomenon that occurs among women of a certain age? Here to walk us all through it is Lynette Sievert, a biological anthropologist at the University of Massachusetts at Amherst. Lynette, thank you so much for making time for us. Oh, thank you. This is nice to be here. Now, to start, humans are actually not the only species that goes through menopause, but it is pretty rare, right? It is rare. I mean, every mammal has the capacity to go through menopause. Every female mammal has the capacity because menopause happens whenever we run out of the eggs that are in the ovaries and all mammals make all of their eggs all at once in utero and then dole out those eggs slowly over the course of the lifespan. 
for most mammals, they die at or before the time that they run out of eggs. So you don't see a menopause. You only see a menopause whenever you have a mammal that lives beyond the egg supply. And there are probably 30 mammals that do that on a somewhat regular basis. But humans are one of the longest-lived mammals that go beyond the menopause. And the other mammal that lives way beyond their menopause are the orcas, the type of whale, and the short fin pilot whale. So two kinds of whales and humans share that characteristic of a long life after the eggs uh, are depleted. But there are a few examples of primates, right? They don't necessarily live as long, but there are some primates that, that go through menopause. Yeah, there's some work that shows that the macaque is probably our best primate model. The macaque is an old world monkey, so it isn't the closest relative to us. Chimpanzees are closer, gorillas are closer, but somehow the macaque is more like us in the slow loss of eggs across time and the capacity to live beyond the egg supply. But there we're talking about menopause by the age of 25, and then they may live another three or four years. So it it isn't a very long span afterwards. And the evidence for chimpanzees and gorillas is mixed. It depends on the population of chimpanzees. Some have found what looks like a menopause, and others haven't. And in gorillas, there was a a really nice study that was done in zoos all over the United States where they were looking at the progesterone levels in the feces of the older female gorillas to see if they were still cycling. And at the age of 48, some of them were, some of them weren't. At the age of 50, some of them were, some of them weren't. I think that was about the the top of the age scale. So you didn't see this universal menopause like humans have. We are universal. By the age of 60 or 62 maybe at the out, outlier um, all women are done menstruating. And you just don't see that in other primates except perhaps for macaques. And in a review that you wrote about menopause, you noted that the phenomenon, you know, we don't see it in chimpanzees. Um, we see a little bit of it in gorillas, but not really. But you noted that menopause probably goes back evolutionarily hundreds of thousands of years. What do we know about where menopause arose in our evolutionary tree? Well, there's work that's done to to make estimates of our lifespan. See, one of the problems is we don't know if menopause was always around 45 or 50. And 50 seems to be the average age of menopause in high-income countries. In high-income countries, you get menopause at 50, 51, 52. In low-income countries, you get menopause around 47, 48. So it may be that in our evolutionary past, age at menopause was somewhat earlier than it is now. So what we're looking for are individuals who lived 
past 40 or past 50 to say, yes, those females had menopause. But we can't always age skeletons really well enough, especially if you're going back to Homo erectus or Homo ergaster or, or other hominins back in our evolutionary past. So what we have to do is we look at for these, they're called allometric relationships, where we're looking at proportions. And you can actually estimate lifespan by looking at the proportions of the body and looking at when the molars erupted and, you know, the teeth and so on. And, and you can come up with a really good estimate for how long that individual where um, that species would have lived. And then you have another extra problem of you can look at maximum lifespan potential or average lifespan. And here we're interested in the maximum lifespan potential of what is our capacity to live. I mean, right now our capacity is 120 years, which is 70 years beyond menopause. That's our capacity as a species. And if we go back in time, maybe a million years, we can see that our capacity to go past menopause was there. But that doesn't mean that any females or many females lived that long. It may be that their average lifespan was 20. And there's good evidence that it was probably 20. But you may have had the odd individual way back in time who had, who was able to reach that capacity. And we know from skeletal evidence that that did happen in archaic Homo sapiens. So our own species, but a hundred or a hundred thousand, I don't know, a hundred thousand years ago, and I'm um, being a little loose with my number there, or it, with Neanderthals, we know that about 10% of Neanderthals lived long enough to have had a menopause. So whenever you go to a physician who says, oh, well, we have to do something about this because menopause is new. You know, we didn't really have a long lifespan or an expected lifespan or an average lifespan until somewhere in the 20th century that made menopause a medical issue. You have to just say, no, 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 no. You're talking about life expectancy. You're not talking about the maximum lifespan potential. And if you look at the maximum lifespan potential, we've had the capacity for menopause for a very long time. And, and even if you go to a museum, like if you go to Philadelphia and you go see the mummies and you look at these mummies that are thousands of years old and how old the females were, I mean, these are, these are the rich the wealthy who were well taken care of, and they're living into their 70s and into their 80s. So we have had this capacity for a very long time. Menopause is not new to our species or even to our genus. It's not new. It's just that now more women have it. So when you're looking at these, um, say you're looking at homo genuses, um, that are you know, mm-hmm. hundreds of thousands of years old. You're, you're mostly looking at fossils. You're looking at bones. How do you look at something like that and say, this person was old and went through menopause? Is there a way to 
look at bones and determine that menopause happened, or are we guessing? Well, I don't know about going back, way back in our genus, but I know that there have been anthropologists who have looked at the bone for evidence of osteoporosis, and they've used osteoporosis as a marker of menopause. Because if you look at the downward trajectory of bone loss, we just go down, 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 and then you hit menopause and it goes way down really fast. And then it sort of evens out again and goes down, down, down. And so there have been anthropologists who look for signs of osteoporosis in these skeletons going back 100,000 years or 50,000 years and showing that that, that that's a marker probably for menopause. And of course, we know that we do go through menopause. I mean, that's pretty obvious. And there are a lot of hypotheses as to why. Some of them seem really depressing to me. (laughs) Um, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the old egg hypothesis, (laughs) which is what I'm calling the this particular hypothesis, the old egg hypothesis of menopause. Yeah. Well, like I was saying, mammals, all mammals, make all the eggs they're ever going to have very early in the lifespan, usually in utero. There's some evidence that there are some mice that can have can, can continue to make eggs for a little while, but it's still early in the lifespan. And so then these eggs just sit there in the ovary, and they sit there frozen in meiosis, in the very first stage of meiosis, so they're they're not even fully eggs yet. It, the the egg that will be fertilized. They're just sitting there. They still have to go through all of this genetic change, and they sit there for forty years, or they sit there for forty five years. And the reason that as women get older and they have more miscarriages is in large part because there are more genetic mistakes that happen whenever the meiosis takes up again, starts up again, and the chromosomes get pulled apart, they get pulled apart wrong, badly, and there are more mutations, and there's there's just more mistakes. So some people have argued that the reason we have menopause is to protect women from giving birth to children with these birth defects because it's better, according to this hypothesis, it's better to invest in the healthy children that you already have, even if that means being postmenopausal, to avoid having more children that would require more care and may not live to adulthood to have more children, more grandchildren for the woman. And there's another hypothesis that is also kind of depressing, I think, called the maternal death hypothesis. <laughs> Can you talk a little bit about that one? Well, and this is, you know, if we go back to thinking about Homo ergaster and Homo erectus and our evolutionary past, you know, we've, uh, Magdalena Hurtado and other people have done the math to show that with foragers, hunters, gatherers, foragers, that the children need their mother until they're about five. And so if a woman continues having children up until she dies, those that last child isn't going to survive. Maybe the last two children aren't going to survive. So back 
when the probability of death was very high early in the lifespan, the idea is that, and this is a hypothesis, but the hypothesis is that it's better to just stop having children and raise those children to adulthood or at least beyond the age of five because at five, they can hunt and gather for themselves. Maybe not hunt, but certainly gather for themselves. I guess I don't see these hypotheses as quite as, as uh, depressing because they're, they're just sort of looking at how long did people live when are our eggs made? How do the eggs sit there in the ovaries? And they're just sort of taking this matter-of-fact evolutionary perspective that the most important thing from an evolutionary point of view is getting genes into the next generation. That's a much more positive way of looking at it. When I was reading <laughs> the papers on this, I kept thinking, oh, man, my eggs are growing old and shriveling. <laughs> and what if I died? <laughs> It all sounds really awful, honestly. <laughs> yeah, well, I don't know. I think from ev evolutionary theory, we're not always thinking about people, individuals, and households. We're thinking about it from a species level. But now we get to the most famous hypothesis um, for why right. women go through menopause, which is also, it, it's also, I think, the most optimistic. Uh, it's called the grandmother yeah. hypothesis. Um, can you kind of run us through the grandmother concept? Mm -hmm. Well, I think this is the most popular hypothesis because we love our grandmothers. I mean, it just, it, it sort of taps into this emotional response that these postmenopausal grandmothers, now, and remember, we're talking about menopause at 40, 45, 50. So these women are, are now 45, 50, 55, 60. They're still relatively young. We're not talking about women in their 80s. So we're talking about a 50-year-old woman who is a grandmother. And also, if you think about having children at 15, you're a grandmother at 30. So we're, we're just talking about an early grandmotherhood. So these women are still vigorous. And Kristen Hawkes is the person who really has developed this hypothesis. And she has the most amazing photograph of a Hadza, Hadza woman in Africa uh, using a lever to raise an enormous boulder so that she can get to the roots underneath to get to the tubers. And she's doing this for her grandchildren. And she's this wiry woman. I don't know if she's in her 40s or in her 50s, but she's just this wiry, strong woman. So the idea is that these grandmothers are providing a lot of food for the grandchildren. That allows their daughters to have more children. So these women are getting more grandchildren. And you count your evolutionary success not on just how many children you have, but on how many children and grandchildren and nieces and nephews and, and whatnot and great-grandchildren. All it's, it's an extended family is how you count your evolutionary success. So these grandmothers are, are post-menopausal because they can have greater extended family success if they invest in the feeding of their grandchildren rather than continuing to have children of their own. Now, these are, we've talked through three of, of these hypotheses, and there's also a hypothesis that menopause might help, you know, prevent cancer. 
Um, how much support is there experimentally, observationally for these hypotheses? Is there like, what kind of support do we have to back up any of these? Well, there, the support for the aging eggs hypothesis comes from the increase in, increase in ab- chromosomal abnormalities with the age of the mother. And that's what they draw on, and then they come to the conclusion, better to just cut it off. For the aging mother hypothesis, there are mathematical models, and the mathematical models are testing how many children and grandchildren and so on does a woman have if she stops her own reproduction. And just as in the same with the grandmother hypothesis, it's mathematical models that are testing this. I mean, one of the challenges to the grandmother hypothesis is that we we do have historical data that we can use to see if places where the grandmother lived in the home had better infant health, and that's just measured as less infant mortality. And so there there have been a number of studies that have looked to see if there's a grandmother in the house, do her are her grandchildren more likely to live? The, the, the challenge is we don't know what her behavior is. We don't know what she's actually doing in these homes. And these same studies show that the maternal grandmother may be a positive influence, but the paternal grandmother may not be. And the grandfathers may also actually be deleterious to the health of their grandchildren. And so then my question is, well, but how do you select for just maternal grandmothers? Because a woman can be the maternal grandmother of her daughter's children and the paternal grandmother of her son's children. You see how complicated it gets? Yeah. And, and we and we don't know yeah, and we don't know what she's doing. You know, we don't know especially and these studies are using data from historical populations. So we're not talking about gatherers moving boulders to get at tubers. So we don't know what she's doing to help. So she could just be sitting around eating bonbons and, you know, drinking <laughs> gin and tonics. We don't know her life. Well, I mean, it goes back a couple of hundred years, so I don't know about the bonbons. But, well, gin and but, tonics yeah, go we, back a couple hundred know. years. <laughs> Probably. Now, yeah. we've been talking a lot about the biological contributors here. You are a biological anthropologist. But there are also cultural contributors that I found to be especially fascinating. Um, and we're getting to the part of one of your reviews, I think, that blew my mind. It turns out that not all women suffer hot flashes. And in fact, in some cultures, it's very rare. And menopause isn't really a thing, culturally speaking. <laughs> Why might that be? What are some of the examples? Well, my most recent example is... I. Uh, did some pilot work in Odisha, so this is not a large sample. But I, I had an undergraduate here at uh, UMass Amherst, Subrangi Swain, and she says, oh, Lynette, you need to come to Odisha in India, and you can stay with my grandmother, and we can talk to women about their menopause. And I, of course, being an anthropologist, I always say yes. <laughs> so I went. And we stayed with her grandmother and her other family members. And we talked to women in this tiny little village in India. And so we're, we're saying, you know, tell us about your menopause. And they would look at us and say, 
and talk about their menstruation or talk about their breastfeeding or talk about their childbirth. And we'd say, okay, that's great. Interesting. Thank you. Now tell us about your menopause. And they would just look at us because they had nothing to say. It was such a non-event in their life. And it became sort of funny because here we were coming from the United States looking for something that they didn't have to offer in a sense. And we only met one woman who even had an idea of what we thought of what uh, hot flashes are. And, I mean, even what we learned in Bangladesh is that when we describe hot flashes to a study participant, we need to be careful because in Bangladesh, they would say, well, what do you mean by hot flash? And there the words were Goram Vap Laga, something. Uh, I mean, that's what it looks like on paper, Goram Vap Laga. It means feeling steaming hot. And we would motion. Well, it's it's sort of here, sort of in the center of the chest. It goes up your neck and it involves the face. And they would all just look and nod politely at us. And and then we had them draw on a body diagram where they felt their hot flashes. And they 68% of the women put their hot flashes on the top of their head. And here in the United States, we almost never talk about hot flashes on the top of the head. But they actually also talked about hot flashes as the feeling of smoke coming from the top of their head. So they were experiencing these hot flashes differently. And we found the same thing in Mexico. I was putting hot flash monitors on their chest. And here they were feeling the hot flashes on the back of their neck. So now I put hot flash monitors on both the chest and the back of the neck. So some places have no hot flashes, and, I, and I, I'm convinced that that that's, was what we found in India. And some places they're having hot flashes, but they're not the same experience that we expected, that these hot flashes have a cultural component. And in Bangladesh, it's probably because they cover their heads because these are 80% of the women were Muslim, so they cover their heads with a scarf. And the Hindus also cover their heads with a scarf, uh, sometimes uh, out of politeness, sometimes because prayer is being called, but that traps in the heat. So it's actually partly cultural that they feel the hot flashes differently than we do. That's so wild to me that a culture can actually influence a biological symptom like that. And mm-hmm. it's it's not just the hot flashes, right? It's also, you know, memory and, and things like that. There are other symptoms of menopause that people experience differently. Mm-hmm. Yes. And then, and that's what we see when I go to Mexico. Well, this is when I was working in Puebla, Mexico. I work now in Campeche. But when I was working in Puebla, I would ask women, what do you associate with menopause? Just open-ended. And they would say in Spanish, bone pain. And I'd say, bone pain? <laughs> what is bone pain? And they'd say, well, it's like when you're getting the cold and or a flu and you just ache all over. That's what you get with menopause. And I thought, isn't that interesting? Because they never, ever volunteered depression. And they almost rarely talked about hot flashes, too. Although when we ask about hot flashes, they had hot flashes. But it was this bone pain that was more important to them or something that they remembered more often. 
So, yeah, we get very different symptom frequencies across cultures. Well, Lynette, thank you so much. I'm so sad that we're out of time because this is amazing. Thank you so much for being here. Well, thank you for the opportunity. It's been fun. We've linked to more information about Lynette Sievert and her work at scienceforthepeople.ca. While you're there, you can check out our links to Twitter, Facebook, iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. You can follow us, like us, or give us a friendly review. You'll also find options to donate. We are an all-volunteer effort over here, and your monthly donation can help keep us going, calling up scientists, and delivering you awesome conversations. If a donation isn't in the cards, that's okay, too. Leave a review or tell your friends about us. Spread the science word. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week on Science for the People. Science for the People is produced by Rochelle Saunders and edited by Ryan Bromsgrove. Helen Quivillon is our publishing liaison. We get research help from Josh Witten and consulting support from Desiree Shell. Our frequently seen guest hosts are Marion Kilgour, Anika Hazra, and Jessica Yaros. Our theme song is called Binary Consequence, and it was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern. Science for the People is entirely listener-supported. You can find us on Patreon, where you can support us with monthly donations in any amount, or you can send us a one-time donation in any amount via the donate page of our website. Science for the People is created in partnership with the Skeptic Network, a collection of blogs, podcasts, and video content focusing on the intersection of science, popular culture, politics, and social justice. You can find out more about Skeptic at Skeptic.org. The show is hosted by science news writer Bethany Brookshire and me, Rochelle Saunders. All right. I hope everybody enjoyed that. I've been Chris, and I'm with... Caroline Owens. And you can find me at Chris underscore LY on Twitter. And Caroline, are you on Twitter? I am on Twitter, and you can find me at Care Owens. Kara will be back next time, and she's a Kara Akabak on Twitter. So, hey, Kara. Sorry we missed you today. Sorry, uh, we did Kara. the Sausage of Science. <laughs> uh, we are part of the Public Relations Committee. Wait, is it that the Publicity Committee? It is the Public Relations right, Committee. For the Human Biology Association. <laughs> <laughs> all right. See y'all. <laughs>